You are listening to Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 FMLP and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour as we continue to remember black history during Black History Month. You know, like just from like day one, I noticed that it was a really tiny school, like 600 kids. But just I was one I was one of six in my class, one of six minorities. And every single day it was like a racial slur and like a hang threat, something just like crazy. And then I like had my teachers telling me that like I would have to like retake tests all the time because they didn't think that I would like be getting a hundred tips on them like um or like truthfully and stuff, which is like was super offensive to me because academic integrity has always been like super important to me. Um, can, I, can I repeat that? And I'm so, sorry, you know, I'm, sorry. On, I'm sorry. I just need to repeat that. The teachers at this magnet school were asking you to take tests again because they didn't believe that you could do it. Yeah. Now that was Elijah Whiteside, a high school student in Charleston, South Carolina, talking about the racism underlying the serene and picturesque Charleston, South Carolina. We'll hear more from Elijah and two of his friends and colleagues. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow veterans Tom Gross and Harvey Bennett. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose direct collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org for more information. Now, you can get a copy of this show by just going to SoundCloud or Anchor Podcasts or go to your phone and um, download the, the, the podcast app. We're there. Just search Veterans for Peace, the Hector Black chapter. Veterans for Peace R Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. All right. We have an assignment for you. Uh, it's the same as the one before last week, only we've added a little bit. We want you to call your member of Congress and ask them to ask the president to pardon the Kings Bay Plowshares 7. And then some add-ons. How about Reality Winter, Air Force whistleblower? And how about Julian Assange, journalist? After all, Trump can pardon the Blackwater murderers. Biden can pardon these people whose only crime was to try and bring attention to the dangers of war, nuclear weapons, imperialism. Okay, on with the show. Harvey arranged this wonderful panel that we will hear from. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Harvey. So this week, uh, we're going to be listening to three activists, young activists from the Charleston area, uh, who are in various ways, uh, actually have boots on the ground there to confront white supremacy. And as, you, as we established last week, white supremacy is more or less the reason for Charleston's existence. So this is kind of how history plays out in the day-to-day. -day. Uh, the first is my very own grandson, Elijah Whiteside, and he's uh, gotten very active, kind of spurred on, like so many people, by the murder of George Floyd. He immediately began attending Black Lives Matter rallies in Charleston and around the county, and met a lot of uh, other activists and um, came and really a leader in some of the, some of the demonstrations. And uh, <clears throat> another one we're going to be hearing from is New from Harlem, and he's been involved in putting together something called the People's Army, which sounds intimidating, and it's really more of a self-defense focused organization uh, because there are a number of uh, right-wing uh, people with um, violent intent in this area. So uh, they work on that. <clears throat> and then we're gonna have uh, Lee Alicia, and she's a uh, Charleston uh, school counselor. 
and former school teacher in an inner city school in Charleston, uh, serving poor and basically black students. So each of them will give us uh, their own uh, little stories of uh, their experiences and activities and, and uh, how they see uh, uh, ways of confronting white supremacy. And we start off with Elijah, right? I believe so, yeah. I've done a lot of like local activist work here, um, just like over the, the summer and into the fall and stuff. So uh, yeah, and really just involved with like mutual aid, giving back to the community, all that good stuff, so. Well, Elijah, let me ask you this. How, how old are you, about 28, 29, 30, you graduate <laughs> student? Um, <laughs> I'm 17. You're 17. <laughs> You're 17 yeah. and you're already in the, involved like this. That's amazing. What made you get involved like this at the age of 17? Um, I mean, I, I was, I don't, honestly, I don't know how anyone could see that video and not want to get involved or like see that video of George Floyd and not instantly want to get off the couch and go get involved. So, um, I mean, for me, I personally experienced police brutality at like a younger age, around 10. Um, and so that was just kind of like a, a chord that struck uh, personally for me. So I just knew how to get out there and do something. You, you experienced police brutality at the age of 10? Do you, do you? Yes, sir. Yeah. Is that too personal to share or would you like to share a little bit with us? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so I was, so my dad, he used to play in the NFL. Um, he was uh, in the Colts. And so he gets invited to these football camps every summer. And so we were at one in uh, Eastern, Eastern Tennessee. And uh, we were actually coming back and the highways were shut down. So we had to take the, like these detour. And we were going through this place called uh, White's, Whitestown or Whitesville. And uh, <clears throat> it was just like this really like rural area um, nothing was really around, and like my dad, like you know, he's he's a he grew up in a um, low income community, so he's like he kind of already knew the drill. So he was just like trying to be careful and stuff. But I think the like, speed limit was like twenty, and he was going like eighteen, but we still got pulled over. And um, I just remember like the cop, like I remember my dad just told me like you know like remember we practice like hands on the dash, head down, like yes sir, no sir, all that. And uh, we've already had the talk at that point, so. Um, I wasn't like that worried about it, but the guy was just being really, really pushy about it. And like, um, and my dad wasn't saying anything because he didn't want to like, he didn't want anything to happen. And um, and the guy was just getting like really, really aggressive uh, for no reason. And like, you know, my dad hadn't said anything at all. He just like give him his license and, and his insurance, anything he want. And uh, and the guy just like, you know, then he started like crying the N word with the hard R, like all that. Um, really wow. just trying to like, get a reaction out of us. And, um, but like my dad was like, hey, like he, like he wants a reaction, like don't give him any, like to stay calm. Um, but eventually he got like, like really, like really mad and um, told us to get out of the car. And my dad was like, well, why, for what, we didn't do anything. He was like, I'm not gonna ask you again, like get out of the car, like N-word. Um, so then he like dragged my dad and I like out of the car and like had us in like, um, like face down and like in the dirt for like 10 minutes while he like quote unquote, like searched our car. But like, he was just um, on his phone back in his vehicle for about like 10 minutes and then like just eventually like let us go but um yeah so that, that happened for me when I was about like 10 or 11. And where was this? Um eastern Tennessee I think that it was either like Whitesville or Whitestown. Well you know Whitesville. White's all too typical though. Yeah all yeah. too typical. I know. You I'm, ever tell your mom about that Elijah? Yeah, she knows about that. Okay. She knew better than to tell me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I'm Yeah, I'm, no, it's okay. It was just uh it was definitely just like a um eye opener for me because Yeah. Um honestly like anything that I had heard about it pre previously I'd been through school and obviously like, you know, how the education like with the, how the education system is, um it's obviously like whitewashes all get out, so <laughs> Um, so, like, really the only things, like, I had heard about, like, police brutality were um, through, like, Martin Luther King in, like, the, the, the 60s. But, you know, it was just kind of like, okay, like, wow, this is, like, still a very, like, real reality. So now you're, you're involved. You're only 17, but what are you involved with? What are you doing? And just tell us your, 
Tell us oh. your story. Okay, so um, after George Floyd, I like, you know, just like anyone else, I just started going out um, to the protest every day. Um, I didn't have any kind of leading role. I would really just stand back and uh, record film because I... I'm a filmmaker, or I actually just got an NYA for film school, so I like to, like, go around and uh, make videos and stuff, and so I just wanted to give, just, like, another, like you know, like, just give that perspective, and I put that stuff out there, and that was important to me, um, but then, like, the more I was out there, I started to meet more people, um, you know, just, like, talking. I'm a pretty, like, uh, friendly guy, so... <laughs> But then, like, uh, next thing you know, like, you know, uh, I got in with the people who, like, were organizing the marches. Um, and then, like, kind of just got to work. So um, I would do car washes for, like, I would uh, do fundraisers. And I think I raised over, like, $2,000 for um, just, like, you know, the, the local community and uh, <clears throat> just, like, uh, other protests and materials, et cetera. Um, and I organized a lot of protests down here. Um, or I would help organize a lot of protests down here, and, um, especially towards like the later half of the summer, it's like um, especially towards like the Brown and Taylor uh, trial. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a journey for sure, but uh, yeah, really just like a whole lot of marching. <laughs> you, you managed to get a lot of uh, uh, media attention. Yeah, a lot of media. Uh, got your name out there, which wasn't always a good thing. So. And there's yeah, always the uh, right, the right <laughs> wing a good social thing media. People, people started showing up at the house. That wasn't fun. Uh -huh. yeah. People started showing up at your house. Yeah, we actually had a, um, a few incidents where um, this guy, who's actually like, I think he was like an ex-cop, who got fired for like throwing a chair through his like phone carrier's window or something crazy like that. <laughs> um, and he like works at this like Confederate bar. It's like exclusively for Confederate people or people who believe in like Confederate heritage. And uh, so, you know, we always dig some digging on him, but he would just like start waiting outside my house like every day around like four to 4.30 and would just like rev his engine and uh, would just like kind of like, glare us down and stuff. I actually have a video um, of it, but yeah, it was just like really crazy. And we actually had to get a security camera because of that, but it was, yeah, just like another eye opener. Yeah, they were they were trying to uh, document his harassment so they could get a restraining order. One yeah. of the neighbors was, uh, I think he was, was he a sheriff or was he a cop? I forget, but he knew how to do it. He helped, he was helpful trying to control this crazy journey. Yeah. Well, you've got a friend here by the name of Mel. Can you introduce Mel and let's hear his story. But yeah, um, I'm 23, I'm a little bit older than Elijah. I'm originally from Harlem, New York. So uh, my story is very rooted in the Black liberation fight because I am from, you know, Harlem, the Black Mecca from Malcolm X Boulevard. So that goes way, way back with me. Um, I met Elijah actually last year in 2020, I think around, was it the Million Man March or the yeah, Battle? I think it was the Million Man March. So I met Elijah originally in 2020 Million Man March. And that's when I was originally coming around Stand as One. It was an organization that uh, me and Elijah are really uh, mutual friends with. Stand so, as One, yeah. Stand as One, yes, yeah. that was the name of the organization. Um, they were doing a, a bunch of local work, like he said, mutual aid, also an organization called People's Army, going out doing mutuals aid and uh, forming counter protests against uh, Proud Boys and different um, anti-fascist uh, people we would call. So um, standing up for uh, the so-called leftists. So yeah, that was around that time when I met Elijah. 2020 was a very great um, year in terms of organizing with different people. Uh, so yeah, you guys have been calling out the Proud Boys pretty good, I think, haven't you? Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure, most definitely. But Mel, what are you doing in Charleston? Charleston, um, I, I have people down here. I have folks down here uh, on both sides, my mother's side and my father's side. So Charleston is uh, where my mother's side is at. So that's how I kind of got closer to Charleston and really learning about my connection to Charleston because a lot of people on North, they don't know, but they have deep roots in the South. 
So learning about my connections down here in Charleston, the Geechee culture and all that, it was very, very, you know, eye-opening. Okay. Uh, wow. Our, last week, the, the show that we're, that would be on uh, a week ago, Harvey um, put together a bunch of information about the hidden history of Charleston. And um, do you all, do you all have a, a have an understanding or a, a, a um, uh, an idea about that hidden history of Charleston, where uh, Charleston is not just a a, a nice um, uh, seaside town with white columns and and fancy restaurants? Do you do you understand? Have you have you gotten an awareness of what went what what Charleston's actual history is? Oh, most definitely. Since my grandmother, of course, my grandmother always told us. Uh, and I kind of relate a lot coming from Harlem as well. Gentrification is a big, big factor up there as well. So when I came down here and heard all the stories down here, what was going on of how it was a slave port and how, you know, these are actual cities and, and you know, built on cities on top of slave grounds. And it was actually our land back then. I totally relate. So, yes, I am. I don't know all of it, but I am very well previewed to some of the knowledge of it. So, Elijah, how about how about you? You're, I'm sure, I'm sure they're teaching you this in high school. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've actually like since I've been to Charleston, I've never had a good experience here, like in terms of like racial relations. So. Um, it was very like present at a, a very a very early for me, and so like you know obviously like that sparked the interest in like you know the history of it and why things were the way that they are. Um, so yeah, I definitely have like a pretty good background knowledge on like the you know how like you know two or three fifths of the entire slave trade came through Charleston, South Carolina, and you know. Tell them a little bit about your experience at the magnet school. Yeah, so um, we're in a military family and we actually moved to Charleston right before my freshman year of high school. And uh, I've always been in like a very like academically inclined family. Or, uh, <laughs> so they were worried about like South Carolina's public education isn't that good. So they were kind of worried about that. So they got me to apply to this school, Academic Magnet, which was like the number one high school in the nation. And um, I actually got into it. And, you know, I actually had to like buy land over there and everything like just for like for me to be able to go to that school so it was like a pretty big deal that I was going like that I got in but um you know like just from like day one I noticed that it was a really tiny school like 600 kids but just I was one I was one of six in my class one of six minorities and every single day it was like a racial slur it was some, like a hang threat something just like crazy and then I like had my teachers telling me that like I would have to like retake tests all the time because they didn't think that I would like be getting a hundred tips on them like um or like truthfully and stuff which is like was super offensive to me because academic integrity has always been like super important to me um can i, can I repeat that and I'm so sorry. you know I'm sorry. On, I'm sorry i just need to repeat that the teachers at this magnet school were asking you to take tests again because they didn't believe that you could do it yeah, and then I would always notice that I would always Christ. be the only one that they would make me retake it. <laughs> I don't even remember that. Yeah, no. That happened a few times in, in bio. Wow. Yeah, well, this school, basically, it's it was, uh, and, you know, <clears throat> we... It was actually um, built on... We, we, we were all just sort of uh, very naive about this school. We thought since it was ranked in some places as the number one uh, school in the country academically. Uh, but we don't, what we didn't realize is that, you know, unlike magnet schools in uh, some places like Nashville, there's not a lottery. There was no, you know, the top 2% or 5% from every school. You know, everyone who got in there had to take entrance exams. And uh, so it was extremely competitive because all the people applying for it were kids who'd been through private schools up until then. They're, you know, they had came from very well-heeled families, and this was their family's way to 
get an elite education for their kids without having to pay the tuition of a private school. So it, it was a very uh, uh, selected elite population of pretty much well-heeled white kids. Yeah. Um, so we live in North Charleston. And all the kids like at, like in Magnet is actually in North Charleston. And just a little bit like background history on Academic Magnet, um, it's actually built on like the uh, Danny Jones facility, and or like the uh, the campus. And um, that used to be a a primarily like black uh, gifted and talented school, and then they tore that school down to build Academic Magnet. And so it's actually like in it's like in this epicenter of these low income communities. So like going to Academic Magnet, actually like driving through these kids' neighborhoods who were like, you know, these kids are going to like North Charleston where like um, they're having like shootings in their schools and um, you know, like really, you know, the, the school to prison pipeline is really like, uh, you know, relevant like, or prevalent there. So it just, to me, like it just felt like really, it just didn't sit right with me. And so um, I've always known my worth and I knew like I didn't need that school to get what I needed to get done and like what or get like where I felt like I needed to be and so that's why I felt I uh, wanted to go to Fort Dorchester that's like a local school um, super diverse we actually had like a 60 percent um, poverty rate there so like you know that was like just something that I wanted to to, to be a part of because I you know I just really like really feel that um, you know you can like memorize as many statistics as you want you know but like just be like a well-rounded person, you have to be able to like understand people who are different from you, understand different perspectives, um, different like so socioeconomic backgrounds, et cetera. Um, and that's like, you know, understanding that that's where you can make like true change and bring everyone together, so. Yeah, and, and it was, there was no, uh, no feeling of belonging at Magnet. Whenever we came by to pick you up, it was just you, you know, people would walk by like you didn't, you weren't even there. Yep. Other students. and. Well, I want to ask both of you, Mel and Elijah. Um, Mel, you're 23, Elijah 17. How did you guys link up and start working together? And so, like, I think the first time we really met was when he came out to my first, like, my first car wash that I had, which I think raised like $750 that day. Um, and so, yeah, so ever since then, we've kind of just started to link up and uh, organize and really just got to get out there and. Isn't that Million Man March the one where you kind of had everyone dressed up and then you were walking back to your car and you got followed by these Confederate rednecks? <laughs> yeah, that was that day. Threatened um, yeah, they had everyone dressed in suits. And uh, actually, when I was like leaving the march, this was um, just before I really had like that was the day that I met everyone um, that led to me to get heavily involved in the movement mm -hmm. um, as far as like organizing and then like at the leader standpoint. But uh, I was walking back to my car and actually got followed um, because the Confederate people, they knew that the protest was happening. And so they had a demonstration um, because where the protest was starting for us was in, um, it was at this park uh, where the Confederate monument is. And so they, had a demonstration where the monument was, you know, just to like make a point or whatever to us, which was stupid. And, um, but like, you know, we came back like five hours later. And so like, we didn't think that they were there anymore. Um, but I was walking back to my car and actually got followed by two guys who um, were like, you know, just started like screaming the most like atrocious things at me and followed me like a mile back to my car and stood in front of my car and like really just like made uh, news gestures at me and like, uh, killing gestures like all that kind of stuff and it was like really disturbing because at the time like my phone was about to die um so like, I, I didn't like you know I wanted to be able to like call someone if I absolutely needed to so I wasn't recording or anything and uh so I got and I, you know it was dark because like and this was like right after like daylight savings or something like that so like the the lights on the street hadn't like caught up to date so like you know, the lights were still off and so no one was outside so I was like really scared because there were like four guys at my car and, um, you know, this is just like how any other story that I've heard, like how that like, went, you know, goes down. So, but, um, you know, luckily I was able to get out and, you know, but that was, yeah, that was like definitely a traumatic experience. And these well, were not kids. These were adults, right? Sure. Yeah, no, they were definitely like in their forties, fifties. You know, and, and adults yeah. is a very nice way to put it, Harvey. There, but Mel, um, some similar circumstances that, you've gone through or why um 
well, how long has it been since you were in Harlem and before you moved to Charleston? And what's that transition been? Oh, that's been many years. I've been in South Carolina for around, I'll say, nine years now. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's been a minute. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, you heard Elijah's going back up to New York. Oh, I heard. I told him to get ready. <laughs> where, where do you think it's yeah. better, Mel? New York or Charleston? Uh, to me, I'm the type of person that's like, um, be upfront with me about it. I don't, I don't want you to hide how you really feel. So I like it better down here. I like my racism nice and blatant in your face. <laughs> I don't like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right out, right out in front, huh? Yeah. Okay, yep. that's, a, that's a I want to know exactly who you are. That's right. That's right. Okay, we, we have someone else who's joined the, the Zoom. Yeah, LW. Yes, Hi, my name is Leilani, guys. Nice to meet you all. Oh, nice to meet you. Thanks. Thanks for being here. So thanks for having us. We, we met Elijah and Mel. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, um, like I said, my name is Leilani. Um, I've been in Charleston for seven years. I'm actually a school counselor downtown at a Title I school, which is a school that serves um, students who, whose family members and families live below the poverty line or at the poverty line. Um, so I work downtown as a school counselor. I've been doing that for three years. Prior to that, I was an English and reading teacher for four. Um, and that was fun. Um, and it was in the same school community. So I know the families, I know the kids, it's a very, a pretty tight knit community. So now I'm kind of, um, getting this, my students, my former students, um, you know, cousins and little brothers and sisters and mm -hmm. things like that. So it's been an enriching experience. I love living here. It has a rich history, a dark history, a sad history, but, one that I really think is important for us to, to know about and one to um, be honest about. And I think that is something that we struggle with here in Charleston. Were you in the middle of all that, the George Floyd protests? And I was definitely around. Um, it was funny because um, the day that we, we first heard about it, we didn't expect very much to happen because we were like, there's been several, um, protest in Charleston, but they're usually silent protests, people holding signs. It's usually not a lot of people, you know, things like that. So we didn't expect much, but to go out there and see how many people were moved by this most recent, um, more recent um, slaughter of a black body and a black person was very moving and it was surprising. And um, to be able to see things from the ground up and to really be there. Of course, I was not involved in any of the vandalism, so to speak. Um, but um, to see things and see how the city handled it, and to kind of be there instead of being just watching it through the news was a whole nother experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad myself and um, my friend, my, my great girlfriend, she, her and I, you know, kind of started all this activism thing stuff together. So we were really grateful to be able to see things from the ground up and see how things really transpired. Um, and that was, was um, an eye-opening experience. And it's been history ever since then, so. Yeah. Well, I know, uh, of course, that was the one where uh, King Street got uh, <laughs> trashed pretty much. That's where all the fancy uh, tourist restaurants and all that happen to be that uh, don't treat the local black population all that well to begin with. Uh, <laughs> well, and I think something about that though too is uh -huh. had the cops and had the police chosen to protect King Street, right, they it would have been fine. But yeah. they literally chose to make sure they were protecting the market. They were protecting you know, the statues that were down by the battery, all uh -huh. these places that are like historically, historically hurtful for black people, uh -huh. they made sure to protect those parts. They could have stopped what happened on King Street. All they needed was a, a cop car to drive down King Street and everybody would have scattered, but they didn't. They put all, how many other cops were down there in the peninsula mm -hmm. by, to push people up away from the market and away from like the battery and stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you think yeah. he did that on purpose so that 
Um, well, of course they did that on purpose, but do you think they did that and said, okay, now let's hope that pe these people um, do do some vandalization. And, 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 and let, me, let me redefine vandals or vandal, vandal, <laughs> vandalism because these white supremacists at the Capitol I have redefined <laughs> vandalism. So right. um, I would suspect that your level of, let's put it this way, activity in Charleston would be more appropriately defined as a middle school prank compared to what the white supremacists did at the Capitol. Um, does, that, does that make sense? Um, yeah, I, you didn't see any, you didn't see any, hear about any pipe bombs <laughs> no, right. found downtown, you know, right. yeah. um, you didn't hear about um, anybody dying, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, do I think that, do I understand where the violent, where the vandalism or violence, or whatever you want to call it comes from on, on the frustrated side of um, people who are black and people who stand with black people. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I've heard people say things like black people built this city. You know what I'm saying? Black people built this city. So if they are involved in riots or whatever you call it and tearing things down, they should be able to do that because they built it, you know, for free. <laughs> so it's stuff like that that helps put things in perspective for me. Um, you know, again, working in the public school system, I have to be careful about being involved in things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I was definitely heavily vocal, you know, and I think the biggest thing about this is it's a lot of frustration building up. We have to realize that this is more than just about a black man who died um, at the hands of law enforcement, who was murdered at the hands of law enforcement. And his knee, a knee was on his neck for nine minutes and the whole world watched. Like, it's more than that. It's all the things that lead up to things like that. It's all the things that suppress black and brown people in America that's now coming to, to a helm and coming to a point where people, it's hard to ignore. You know, now the conversation is about, what about the people who are living, the people who are alive? What about the systems that are built against black and brown people that make it hard for them to survive and thrive? You know what I'm saying? Um, and being an educator, I get to see, I get to see all of that. I see it through my kids, I see it through their families. I see it through how the school district <laughs> figures out ways to uh, metaphorically put knees on the necks of our families all the time, you know, and how we, we at, uh, again, a teacher at mostly black school and see how to see how that happens all the time is something that I wanted to not just bring light to the injustice of, of the murder, but to show the many other ways that white supremacy and um, whiteness affects people day to day while they're still alive, you know? Mm. Well, Charleston, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Walter Scott was murdered by the police in North Charleston. Mm -hmm. And that's the sad thing is that the reality is that's how a lot of these things start over dumb traffic stops, over things that are very, that a white person could probably get away with, you know? And a lot of times people ask, well, you know, what were you doing? during George or um, Walter Scott in the manual nine. I'm like, I don't know, probably so stressed out and probably so sad and paralyzed. I remember being the person to text all of my male, my black male cousins and being like, yo, we need to go over the protocol and my brothers and my like uncles. I'm like, we need to go over the protocol for what you do if you get stopped by the police. Like tears in my eyes, concern. For me, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was Philando Castile. That mm. took me out. That took me out. And I was just like, well, <laughs> I was so worried, you know, I was so concerned because I was like, that could be anybody, any black person I know, that could be any black man that I know. And, um, you know, we talk about the Emanuel Nine and we talk about Walter Scott, things that happen in our city and why isn't the response, why is the response so strong for a person who did not, who lived eons away from here uh, than for people who live in our own city? And it's a great question. But my argument for that is that Charleston does not deal well with, does not encourage that type of, of um, response, doesn't encourage passion, doesn't encourage um, 
the truth really you know they try to make it seem like we're above this we're beyond above and beyond this antebellum south yet they're still glorifying it because that's what our tourism industry is built off of you know they want to they want the good and the cute parts of it but not to recognize ugly and then the all the mm -hmm. urging and all the the um pleading is to please respond peacefully i can only imagine what those conversations are like when the mayor hears about something like this and rushes to the family's house and really yeah sure they might be there for sympathy but they really want to be like please like when you get on the news make sure you say you want everyone to be praying and make it a peaceful response yeah. you know right. <laughs> i can get i can only i can only imagine what it's like that, that the police and the mayor and everybody gets in the family's ears so quickly when things like this happen that it then takes away from a, a true response, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm big on, I mean, anybody will tell you whenever we hear about these things, the first thing I always say is what does the family want? Because you never want to go against the will of the family because you don't want to make a wound, you know, larger than it already is. But again, by the time we get to them, my concern is that someone else, some other powerful person in power has already gotten to them and been like please just urge it's important that we're peaceful and that would be my my argument for for those two incidences um mm -hmm. and the response in charleston to that so well they all yeah their their main number one concern is they don't want anything to happen that's going to impact the tur tourist trade facts <laughs> god forbid <laughs> they want those weddings you know out of town weddings that, that like to stage them in plantations. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, Elijah, and even that's becoming like kind of taboo now. Like, did yeah, you all finally. hear about Pinterest? How oh. Pinterest is no longer like allowing, like no longer allowing plantation weddings or whatever to be a hashtag. They don't have any, any pictures or any features of plantation weddings on their websites anymore oh, because well, they're like oh this is kind of tone deaf you know yeah well that that's progress isn't it well i'll just throw it out to all three of you um that that's something a little bit of progress and last week harvey talked about referred to a lady that wrote about her history as a great great granddaughter of a slave trader right. and how she's putting a plaque on a building to help healing. Is any of that going to help you heal? <laughs> Doubtful. <laughs> Mel? Yeah, that's, that's what you call cheap grace. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that performative activism we talk about. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's you not know? repairing the damage. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, Mel, is that, uh, Mel or Elijah, is that going to help you... Um, is that going to help with healing or what would help he with healing? No, that's honestly like my problem with uh, Charleston. Honestly, a lot of democratic cities you see, I feel like instead of addressing the problem, they're like, here, like take this, they try to hand out like symbolism in a way um, in the terms of taking down the John C. Calhoun statue or put it on this plaque to like, you know, quote unquote address issues. Um, but but they're not addressing the substance of those issues or where, like, you know, where those issues came from. Um, and so, no, like, that's not, that's not making change and that's not where the change is going to come. Um, like, change is going to come from, like, you know, directly tackling these issues head on and, uh, you know, actually listening to what the people have to say at these city council meetings, at these uh, county council meetings, you know, um, and, like, hearing the community for what they're saying because the community has been speaking out. It's not like they're, it's not like they're not using their voices. Um, it's more of, like, these elected officials not doing their jobs and uh, you know choosing to protect property instead of um, you know the life of black and brown people. You, Elijah, you were telling me about one of the council people who was uh, praising the Proud Boys. Was that what it was? Yeah, um, we had a like, little incident the other month around like the election. Um, I think it was about like a week and a half after the election. Um, so Joe Biden was already announced the winner and stuff. Um, and so the local right-wing groups here, uh, what was it, the Contemporary Conservative and uh, the Overton Report, um, were just two right-wing, like, just a-holes, like, just stuck up. They're terrible. Um, <laughs> just, ugh. 
but uh, they like you know they organized this protest on the um, what was it the courthouse downtown, and um, they so like they invited the Proud Boys there, so there were just like thirty Proud Boys, and they pulled up on this tank, so it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. It was just on a Sunday morning, and so we organized a counter protest. We were um, you know the like you know the Antifa of it, <laughs> and so. Yeah, and so like the like you know, and we're looking on Twitter, and you know the Proud Boys had announced that they were actually working with the Charleston Police Department on security. Just like wow, that is that's really crazy to see. Just like it, the, uh, the reality of the two different worlds. So the wow. Proud Boys are working with the police on security. That's special. Yep. That's mm, sounds like Kenosha. Yep, and then yeah. when we, at the end, we were asking, we were literally begging Chief Reynolds, who's the police, uh, he's like the chief of police here, to come, just come talk to us, because, like, you know, maybe we can see the eye to eye on some issues, and, um, you know, instead of coming to talk to us, he just turned his shoulder. Uh, do you think you're going to get more cooperation and, and real momentum on a local level as opposed to a state level? Well, honestly, I think the best plan of action, because the um, when it comes down to the Charleston Police Department, they hate um, they hate bad press. That's what it comes down to. They hate looking bad. Um, and so, what I think we really need to work on getting like larger media platforms involved, and really um, pressuring these um, and pressuring you know like the the councils and the police departments, um, because you know that that's when they start to care and start to seem to. You know, to start like to start getting things going. So, okay, you know, it's interesting what you said and what each of you have said was that um, uh, the the police and the mayor are, are are just don't like the bad press. They don't like bad press. Well, why the hell don't they behave? <laughs> if you don't like bad press, then behave, show respect. I mean, this, shouldn't this be easy? Well, like we learned in the uh, insurrection, uh, police departments uh, and white supremacists uh, overlap in too many cases. Exactly. Tell us about the People's Army. Uh, the People's Army is a, a organization that kind of branched off of Standards One. We kind of were originally a defense group for Standards One. And um, how I got brought into things is usually uh, I'm not really like politically correct as my other friends and, you know, cohorts here. Like I'm very much straight up front and I am very much not passive aggressive when it comes to standing up for my black people and black liberation. So how I got into it was the whole self-defense thing since standing up for your peoples and a, a community, uh, some sort of guard. So mm. that's how we kind of started off as, and then we kind of branched off from standards one cause of, you know, political differences and point of views of how to go about black liberation mm. and kind of, uh, you know, went about it our own way. Uh, PA was mainly, we, we kind of took the Black Panthers blueprint. Basically. I was going to say, it reminds me of the Panthers. Yeah. Com yeah, most definitely. We definitely protecting took the, Black the Panthers. community. Yeah. Yep, most definitely. Most definitely. But specifically the Fred Hampton chapter, where mm. uh, we focused on intersectionality and, and wanted to grow a part of the people. Mm. You know, I mean, more mainly focused on the people, the People's Party, and bringing the resources back to the people and redistributing it back to the people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, most definitely. So, th there is an active group of folks there in Charleston who are uh, pursuing that. Yes, there is, there is. Okay. What's your next plan? What's the next strategy? Where do you go from here? Uh, I ask myself that every day. I didn't get a chance to uh, answer your um, healing question because that's also a question that uh, I ask myself every day. So in terms of that, it's always to heal. It's always to heal the community to somehow bandage the wounds that's kind of deeply synced into the black community specifically. So in terms of healing is the goal and how to heal. I feel like 
that's going to have to be like a whole reprogramming of the psyche, like especially the American society, not saying that everybody else in the world needs it, but the American society specifically because of the technologies and the luxuries that we have. Um, I say that because the more we could talk about redistributing and the goods of people and all of that, I feel like the mentality and the psyche, I feel like is very in a mundane state. I feel like we have ways to elevate first because even if we do somehow come in terms of power and somehow on the level of the people that oppress us, who's to say that we're not gonna oppress those people as well? So I feel like healing comes from within at first. We have to look within and try to feel, uh, find a way how to heal ourselves, heal the community from showing that, that we can also heal ourselves. We have to have some type of like resemblance of representative of it and go about it that way. The uh, Charleston reparations panel, which was held in November of 2019, uh, <clears throat> Kathy and I, my wife, uh, went to that shortly after we moved here, and uh, they discussed reparations and and what repairing, what what it, what it would take to repair and to restore and to rehabilitate the. Uh, descendants of this horrendous uh, 400 years of mm -hmm. slavery and Jim Crow and uh, institutional structural racism. And I'll go back to Lilani. What would reparations look like to you? <laughs> um, so to me, you know, people ask, what is it? What can you do? What can we do? Um, to, to, to fix this. And I just talked about performative activism. A lot of people just say, cut a check. You know what I'm saying? Cut a check. And while we do hear about a lot of these businesses and organizations donating to BLM and do donating to Black Lives Matter because of what's been happening and what's, what we really as a, as a world have, had been forced to watch. Um, why I don't think that is the worst idea, I do agree with that type of, of help. I think it, there's more to that. I think we need political power. I think black people need political power. I think black people need to be in some ways left alone, right? If you think about how people are like, well, you know, the black people are just different today and you know, it's not the same. It's like, well, really, we're really the same. We're really the same ambitious group of people who want to see liberation, who are striving to make ends meet and to, to try to achieve this American dream, which in many ways is um, obsolete and not a reality for most, which is why it's called a dream. But if you think about, there's been plenty of instances in history where black people have thrived directly after slavery, reconstruction, when you talk about how many um, people in the South, how many black people in the South were in elected uh, official offices there were so many of them and the number was growing uh, right after the Civil War. Talk about Black Wall Street and how much of a thriving community that was. There's a, a, a community in Philadelphia thriving. And each of those instances are just examples because there's plenty more, right? Where times where Black people were to themselves, they weren't bothering anybody. They were just in their own community. They weren't trying to be up in white people's communities or anything like that. They were thriving on their own and being self-sufficient and self-determined. And for whatever reason, the white supremacists didn't like that. <laughs> so they came in and they did what they did, you know, in all three of those instances. And to me, what I've been seeing even in Charleston is like the different small ways that the city government and that the state government are thwarting black progress and black innovation at every turn. And it's, a, it's like an easy slow lull of what I would call like a black Wall Street. You know what I'm saying? What the massacre in Tulsa, right? It's a, it's a masking, it's a more political quote unquote way to murder and to um, stop black, black progress that doesn't seem as bad. You know, cause it's done little by little in these city ordinances, these little city laws, all those different things, the businesses, the contracts, the city contracts, and you know, the, 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 the contracts with West Edge, which is what's happening in downtown on the peninsula. This is an area where a lot of my black students live. 
and they're now trying to basically build closer to those projects mm-hmm. um you know and and they even have a police sub substation there all of a sudden right when the police station is a mile away why do you need a police substation that's taking up housing it's taking up housing units where people could live and you're putting a police substation there mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying so Black reparations and progress, well, I would say Black reparations to me would look like not doing stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, stop doing the stuff you're doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. That would be stop. a start. Stop, right. What did you say earlier? Like, if they don't want the, you know, if they don't want the issues, just behave. Just behave, you know? Yeah. So it's like, it's so tone deaf. And the fact that that happened on the heels of George Floyd, mm-hmm. right? It happened mm-hmm. on the very heels of George Floyd. So to me, I'm like, that's so tone deaf. Like y'all are not listening to anything that people are saying, you know? And these are black people and impoverished communities that are trying to live and trying to thrive. But you have, you see something else is fit. Instead, we're gonna paint Black Lives Matter on the concrete, which we haven't even gotten that. Or instead we're going to rename Calhoun, Mother Emanuel Way or whatever they called it, (laughs) you know? Like we're gonna keep the racist name, street name, but we're gonna call, (laughs) We're gonna call it Mother Emanuel Way, the Manual yeah, Nine, yeah. to make you feel better. Like what? Yeah, we no. have Septima Clark uh, Expressway. Uh, that's great, but how does that help anybody's life? You know, right? Because yeah. it actually didn't, right? It, they actually <laughs> took homes again. They took homes away from black people to build that road. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So those are all the things. So like you said, just do let like let the natural like the progression and the, the black businesses and homes and communities, what they're trying to do, let them do it. And don't come in every time the, the hottest real estate investor comes through. You know what I'm saying? Don't don't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what it would look like to me. Like let let all the like the, the perks that other white people can have access to and things like that, let black people and black businesses have access to those things too. And don't come in and try to stop the party when they're doing great. You know, to me, reparations looks like, especially right now, marijuana is huge, right? Marijuana, hemp, the whole nine, people are making businesses out of it, right? And it's becoming legalized little by little in different states and things like that. But, you know, the people who are making the business out of it, a lot of people, which happen to be black and brown people who are making a huge business out of it, back in the early 2000s and the 90s are sitting there doing 20 years, you know what I'm saying, in jail. Yeah. Yet now we're deciding to make dispensaries that look like Apple stores, you know? So like maybe reparations looks like, I know reparations would look like letting, letting those men and women free. And then from there, going ahead and giving them the startup money for a business, you know? So. Those are some examples. That's wonderful. I mean, it's just, okay. That's great. Treat people decent. So I guess it's time to, I guess it's to say, well, what's your final thought? Nothing. I mean, I'm really excited. I was not expecting this. Um, this is random to me, but, you know, I enjoy speaking about things that are going on in hopes for people to be inspired as well, um, to do their own activism. Uh, and work for the liberation of all people. And when you see a social injustice, you know what I'm saying, address it. I hope that this is something that inspires people to do that, to get involved, ask questions, to question their own their own isms, you know? Um, I would say no one has made it to the peak of greatness of all equity and all those things, right? No one's made it to the peak, but for us to continue to always continue examining ourselves and doing the work, that, that's required of us to be be those people one day or get close to it. Um, so that's my closing thought. <laughs> um, um, I need a lot more people like you. <laughs> um, I'll say most definitely everything, my final thought would be everything that we say that we want to achieve in terms of uplifting the community is very much like in reach. I love King. But one thing I could say is this thing is not a dream. You can make it a reality, I feel like, because uh, I've seen it personally. And I feel like such thing as reparations, 
it, it goes again like what I said of repro- reprogramming the psyche of American society. Like, mm-hmm. uh, why do we need a mansion with 18 rooms in it when a person's outside sleeping on the ground? Why do we need a hotel with a fancy ass, excuse my language, uh, fountain, you know, giving out water when we have people in certain places that's receiving dirty water that can't even drink, you know what I mean? So I feel like just certain things have just, I've seen it ourselves. I've seen, seen it when organizing people's army where it's just 10 people. All I need was 10 people to go to uh, Dollar Tree, and, you know, spend a little $50 to $20 out your check, buy some um, deodorants, some toothpaste, and, and things and gave it out to um to the um people in need. That's all it really takes. And then that can multiply to 20 and that can multiply to 30. And right there you have a group of people organization that you could go and you, you know you could build chapters and you could go so forth and so on and up so and talk talking about lifting up the black community. So I would just say most definitely these things are in reach. We just need people that are um enthused about doing it happy about it have the spirit about it and want to see you know people up on their feet instead of these capitalistic imperialistic and efforts that want to just leech off society and live good so yeah most definitely <laughs> nice okay thank you well said you said yeah. it perfectly elijah any final words um yeah this might be taking it uh, into left field a little bit but i would just say that i think there just needs to be a little bit more of a focus in, uh, in terms of school programs <clears throat> Because now with COVID and online and virtual and stuff, um, and obviously a lot of these families and these low-income communities are in tough financial situations. And, um, you know, a lot of these kids who have like, you know, just like, uh, are in like single parent households um, are home all day. And a lot, like, you know, a lot of these areas, like they don't have access to Wi-Fi. And so, you know, they're not really getting equal opportunities in terms of um, education. And so I really just think it needs to be uh, more of a focus in terms of that. Priority for sure, yeah. Very good. What a wonderful panel we had on here. So there was our panel of three young activists seeing the reality while trying to create a better Charleston, South Carolina. But of course, of course, this is almost every city in this country. Almost every city is facing these challenges. But I am so hopeful that this panel see hope on the horizon, see possibility, see potential. Okay. So now, as normal, we always ask our guests to pick a song. And the song is Hood Politics by Kendrick Lamar. So take care. Have a good week. Bye now. Okay, that. Pick up the phone, nigga. Every time my car is going to voicemail. Don't tell me they got you on some weird old rap shit, nigga. No socks and skinny jeans and shit. <laughs> Call me on Shanika's phone. I've been eight once since day one, you niggas boo-boo. Your own boy, your black that you're from, boo-boo. Little hoes you went to school with, boo-boo. Baby mama and your new bitch, boo-boo. We was in the hood, 14 with the deuce-deuce. 14 years later, going hard like we used to on the dead homies. On the dead homies. My little homie's done a deuce, ain't never coming back, my, my nigga. nigga So you better go hard every time you jump on wax, my, my nigga Don't shit is where it's at, my, my nigga. nigga Came in this game, you stuck your fangs in this game You want no chain in this game, your hood, your name in this game Now you double up, time to bubble up the bread and huddle up Stick it to the scripts, now if them bitchamins go cuddle up Skip, hop, drip, drop, flip, flop With the white tube sock, it go what the products smell like when the chemicals mix 50 niggas salute, out the Captain Zoom With the extras, Elkos, Monte Carlos, Road Kings and Dressers Rip Riders, P-Focus, messing, nobody can fuck I've been with you since day one, you niggas boo-boo Your own boy, your block that you're from, boo-boo Little hoes you went to school with, boo-boo Baby mama and your new bitch, boo-boo We was in the hood, 14 with the deuce-deuce 14 years later, going hard like we used to on the dead homies on the dead homies. 
camera blocking at award shows No, no ask about my bitch, no, no ask about my foes Unless you asking me about power, yeah, I got a lot of it I'm the only nigga next to Snoop that can push the button Had the coast on standby, kid out, what up, I heard they opened up Pandora's box, I box in my land by a landslide Nah, homie, we too sensitive, it spill out to the streets I make the call and get the coast to fall, the history repeat But I resolved inside that private hall while sitting down with Jay He said it's funny how I won from the game I've been A1 since day one, you niggas boo-boo I remember you was conflicted, misusing your influence. Sometimes I did the same, abusing my power full of resentment, resentment that turned into a deep depression. Found myself screaming in the hotel room. I didn't want to self-destruct. The evils of Lucy was all around me. So I went running for answers until I came home. But that didn't stop survivor's guilt Going back and forth trying to convince myself the stripes I earned Or maybe how A1 my foundation was But while my loved ones was fighting a continuous war back in the city I was entering a new 